Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. If you're a dog owner like me, you know what that bond looks like. We feed them. We take them outside in sub-zero weather. We shout out our love for them in Emmy's thank you speeches. Lastly, everything I do is for my three dogs. So um, (laughs) the uh, Federal Drug Administration, if you could please fast track that uh, canine anti-aging pill, that would be so lovely. Uh, Thank you so much. And like Lee Sung Jin, the director of Beef, mentioned, we mourn them when they leave us behind. But what if they could stick around a little longer? Dogs share so much of their lives with us and can develop similar health conditions like dementia or old age. That similarity drove researchers to wonder if our medical science can help dogs live longer. And maybe if dogs could tell us something about how humans age, too. But five years and 47,000 dogs later, an ambitious longitudinal study on dog aging is at risk of losing its funding. That could mean winding things down just as they're getting started. Here to explain is Daniel Promislow, a biogerontologist at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Dog Aging Project. Hi, doctor. Welcome to Soundside. Thank you for inviting me. It's really a pleasure. What inspired you to look into dog aging? What are you hoping to learn? Dogs are an amazing species to study aging. I've worked on aging my whole career, more than 30 years now. And I've always been really interested in variation. Way back when, as a graduate student, I looked at aging across species of mammals, from mice to elephants and everything in between, trying to understand why some are long-lived and some are short-lived. And then I worked on variation in fruit flies. Anyone who goes to a dog park immediately sees that dogs have got to be one of the most variable species on the planet. And not just in terms of their size and shape and color and behavior, Turns out they're also incredibly variable in their patterns of aging. There are long-lived and short-lived breeds, and the specific diseases that we think of as diseases of aging in humans differ among dogs. And so they provide us with an incredible opportunity to understand the causes and consequences of that variation. And then one more thing that is just one of the most important reasons to study dogs is that people love dogs. They want to share their stories about their dogs. I can't get enough of talking about my dog, Monty, and he is getting a little bit older. He's eight years old now. And the aging process is something that you can watch and kind of worry over and think, what can I possibly do to improve his life and longevity? Is there enough in dog biology that's applicable to human biology, though, from from your findings? So dogs are a great model for aging for dogs. What we learn about dogs is going to help dogs and their owners. They're also a great model for humans. So much of the of what happens as a dog ages is really similar to what happens as we age, but unfortunately sped up. They get many of the same diseases that we do. Their mortality increases similarly as ours does as we age. And importantly, they live in our environment. So the risk factors that we discover for aging in dogs are likely to apply to people. And then finally, they have this incredibly sophisticated healthcare system, probably second only in sophistication to that of the human healthcare system. So 
we have the same approaches for diagnosis and treatment and prevention. So what we learn about that in dogs is likely to apply to people as well. Unfortunately, unlike humans, there is no Obamacare for dogs. So pre-existing conditions are not covered by dog insurance. That's something I learned the hard way with a dog with a heart abnormality. <laughs> um, but in other ways, yeah, the, the system of healthcare, we spend so much money, right, on trying to keep our pets healthy. Yeah. So what kinds of data are you collecting from dogs that sign up for the project? The data set that we're collecting is incredibly rich. The first thing that I want to say is that we're sharing all our data So everything that we collect about the dogs, we make available to the scientific community around the world. And we're very excited to be an open data project. We collect all kinds of data. First, we just ask our participants to fill out surveys every year, telling us about the environment of the dog, the health of the dog, their diet, all the sorts of things that are just about the dog's experience. For a subset of dogs, we also collect genetic information. So we have 47,000 dogs that have provided us with survey information. So far, we've carried out full genome sequencing on about 7,000 of those dogs. That's really important because it allows us to identify the specific genes that are associated with healthy aging or with risk factors. And those could in turn help us identify ways to increase healthy aging. And then for a smaller group of about 1,000 dogs, We send them a kit every year to take to their veterinarian to collect blood samples, hair, fecal sample, urine sample. And we do not only the kinds of tests that human doctors do, doctors for humans, like the complete blood count and blood chemistry and urinalysis. We also do molecular biology studies to try and identify biomarkers of healthy aging in dogs. And then lastly, there's a smaller group of dogs that ultimately will be 580 dogs. And those are enrolled in a clinical trial testing the ability of a drug called rapamycin to increase healthy aging in dogs. So this has only been around the study for a few years, but I assume that the ambition is to follow dogs throughout their entire lives, right? I mean, you would be tracking them from puppyhood to their death. That's exactly right. By following dogs over time, what we call a longitudinal study, that's a really important aspect of what we do because it allows us to identify the factors in the environment, the diet, behavior, and so on that actually cause or prevent future aging. And so that long-term aspect is absolutely critical. Just like human studies, like the Framingham Heart Study or the Baltimore Longitudinal Study or the Women's Health Initiative, which is actually run out of Seattle, but nationwide, that have been going on for many, many decades. So what are some of the findings that you've been able to glean from the data that you have on dogs so far? I know it's early days in the study. We are just getting started, but already we've had some really exciting findings. Just a a few things that I'll mention. One that wasn't a surprise, but I think is really important, is that more active dogs are healthy dogs. Our data support the idea that to ensure that your dog is the healthiest dog as it ages, it's important to try and keep it active. Interestingly, we've also found that the social setting of the dog can impact its health. So for example, dogs that live in homes with other dogs tend to be healthier. Now, 
This doesn't mean that everybody with a dog should run out and get a second dog or a third dog. That's a really important conversation for each dog owner to have with their veterinarian, with their family members. But it raises really interesting questions. We don't know why it is that dogs with other dogs in the home appear to be healthier, but the kind of data that we're collecting will help us answer those questions. And I'm assuming you're going to be looking at the ways that we can apply those lessons to to what happens when people age. Very much so. For example, we found that dogs that live in neighborhoods that have higher, what we call a lower neighborhood uh, advantage index, so uh, lower socioeconomic status, those neighborhoods tend to have less tree coverage, for example, for important historical reasons. Those dogs tend to be less active. There are likely to be fewer parks nearby. And that suggests not only ways that the environment creates risk factors for the dog, but also more reasons for us to try and improve all of our environments. Okay, now we want to get to the reason that we dialed you up today, because there's been some worrying news about your funding for this study. Again, it's in early days. So far, the National Institute of Aging, which is part of the NIH, um, has been the major source of grant funding for your research. But you've reapplied for funding, and it appears that you're not going to get renewed for that funding. What do you know about this decision, and, and what's the status of that? First of all, while it looks like we aren't likely for this particular grant to be renewed, it's often the case uh, in science that scientists are asked to revise and resubmit grants. And that's where we stand. So we still have an excellent relationship with our colleagues at NIA, at the National Institute on Aging. And we will be revising and resubmitting our grant in May of this year. But we do face a challenge. And I will say that I'm a true believer that out of challenges grow opportunities. And that's what's happening here. So we are facing a period of about a year where we are going to run out of our NIH funding until we get the grant renewed. And I'm confident that we will. And what's exciting is that people are stepping forward to help us out. Small donors have come forward and given donations from even starting at $5, whatever people can afford. And nonprofit organizations that support aging research are helping us identify high net worth individuals that can help us create a financial base that I hope in the long term, in combination with NIH funding, will actually make us more robust and more resilient in the long term. So we're facing major financial challenges, but I'm confident we'll get through them. And people are reaching out to find out how they can help us get through them and have more impact in the future. You've basically had to start outside fundraising in order to bridge the gap until public funding comes through again. Is that right? It is. And so throughout the history of the project, uh, the University of Washington has helped us fundraise. Many people have donated to the University of Washington. My colleagues, Matt Caberline and Kate Creevy, have also worked with me to create a nonprofit organization through which we can also uh, raise funds, the Dog Aging Institute. So we're doing everything we can to make sure that we can keep the project alive. 
Our team is based nationwide at institutions around the country, and we want to make sure that we can keep the entire team intact. This is an incredible team of dedicated people who have been working for years on this project. We want to keep all of them fully supported and the team intact so that when we get back to NIH funding, we're already in great shape, up and running. Do you have a dollar amount that you're targeting in order to fill this uh, interim time? We, we do. We have a few different uh, levels. So just to keep the boat afloat, to keep the lights on, we need a couple of million dollars. And that would allow us to keep the team intact and continuing to collect data from our tens of thousands of participants to do all the science, like the molecular biology that I do in my own lab and many other labs, we would need six or seven million. And then I have a dream of creating a platform of maybe 40 or $50 million in our, in our nonprofit institute to support the kind of work that we're doing, as well as support other scientists and researchers um, around the country interested in these kinds of questions and even broader questions. I'm really fascinated by the fact that aging connects everything. The reason I love to study aging is because it's not only a question of interest to scientists, but also to economists and anthropologists and sociologists and even artists and so on. I hope that eventually the Institute will be uh, a place that brings those conversations together. And many of those conversations are already happening in the context of the dog aging project. So I'm I'm really excited about the future. And again, the project's only been running for a few years. Paint a picture for me. I mean, how devastating would it be to have to stop collecting data at this point in your research? I mean, how many questions would you not be able to pursue? How many issues with dogs and aging would be out of reach? So the, the first funding that we got from NIH allowed us to build the infrastructure for the Dog Aging Project. What's amazing is not only the infrastructure that we built, but the fact that we were able to do it during a global pandemic. And despite how long it took and that we did it during a global pandemic, during that time, we published more than 40 papers. We have built this incredible infrastructure that now will allow us to realize the full potential of the dog aging project. To shut it down now would be a tremendous loss of that potential. Leading senior aging researchers from around the world have spoken about the importance and impact of this study. So it's absolutely critical that we keep it going. We are just beginning. We are, everything is up and running. This infrastructure that took a huge amount of effort by this amazing team of almost 100 people is ready to, to launch. We've got other people who are writing collaborative grants with us. So all of this potential energy is now being realized. Now is not time to shut it off. Now is the time to build it even more. And, and that's where our fundraising initiatives come in to really make sure that we can realize the full potential of this incredible project. Can we just take a step back and just talk about sort of the plight of researchers like yourself? You were relying on NIH grants, but this type of funding doesn't necessarily provide lasting security, as we're seeing right now. There's going to be this lapse in funding as you reapply for the grants, you know, from the public sector. Do you have any takeaways about the way we fund scientific research in this country? It's really striking that you 
with all of this infrastructure built up for the dog aging project, you're having to go out and, and build your own fundraising mechanism in order to make it continue. I, I think there are a few challenges. Um, and one pretty big challenge is just that the, the NIH budget has not increased at the same rate as inflation and the cost of living index. We certainly need more funding in this country for both basic research as well as health, the kind of health-related research that NIH supports. At the same time, I also think that it's valuable to have a diversity of funding sources. And at the same time, I, I think there's real value for those scientists uh, who can do this in building a broad base of support for the kind of work that they do. There's great science that's done through NIH funding or NSF funding. There's equally exciting science supported by foundations and philanthropists. And there's great science being done in the commercial realm. I think all, all have value. And given the breadth of what we want to do, the reason that I say our, our funding crisis has created an opportunity is that it's helping us on the dog aging project to realize a broader base of support. And for us, that's going to be good in the long term. But I would reiterate that we also certainly need more funding for basic research in this country to catch up to the cost of living over the last decades. Dr. Daniel Promislow is a biogerontologist at the University of Washington and a co-founder of the Dog Aging Project. Thank you so much and shout out to all the good boys and girls who have been part of the study so far. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to chat with you today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.